from the book of 1 Samuel. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And so he went and lay down, and the Lord called him again, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he got up and went to Eli, and he said, here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And therefore Eli... said to Samuel, Go and lie down, and if the voice calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. And on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there, until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that the Lord told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that God told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And then he said, It is the Lord. Let God do what seems good to God. As Samuel grew up, the 
Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the word of the Lord. People, I suspect, often think of themselves as brave in the abstract. I mean, you watch a movie, you, you, you read a book about an event or an adventure that requires courage uh, or resourcefulness from the antagonist. You watch uh, Eugene Goodman, the Capitol Police officer who led the insurrectionists away from the Senate chambers. And it's almost impossible not to ask yourself, could I do that? Would I cave under the pressure? Would I do the right thing? Even if doing the right thing cost me greatly. And we identify with those characters. Tomorrow, for example, we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And with all the inspiring and often out-of-context quotes on social media and all the documentary retrospectives, many people who weren't alive during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, they asked themselves, when looking at this, given, given the chance, would I have done the right thing back then? Would I have marched? Would I have faced the dogs and water cannons? Would I have gotten arrested along with Dr. King? Now, of course, many people got to answer that for themselves this past summer as the nation erupted in protest against what appears to be government-sanctioned violence against black people. Perhaps we give ourselves too much credit. But it's easy to believe that when it all comes down to it, if it were us, we'd do the right thing. I mean, who doesn't want to think that, you know, forced to choose, they'd resist evil, that they'd refrain from falling into corruption, from, from being dishonest, from doing harm to the most vulnerable. I mean, who doesn't see themselves as the hero of their own story? The one willing to stand when you know what's going to happen to you because of your determination to do the right thing. The one willing to say no when everyone else is falling all over themselves to say yes. Monsignor Oscar Romero was one of those people. He lived in El Salvador and tried to get the church to act like followers of Jesus in the face of corrupt leaders. Life was continually threatened. But he refused to leave the country, even when his friends and supporters urged him to do so. Listen to these words from a sermon of his, a sermon that I suspect wouldn't be out of place in our congregation at DBCC. He said, in the gospel of Christ, one must not love oneself so much as to avoid getting involved in the risks of life that history demands of us. The experiences of a new earth must not weaken, but rather stimulate our concern for this earth. May we give ourselves like Christ, not for the self, but to give justice 
and peace to our people. Well, that's pretty straightforward, pretty innocuous, right? I mean, it's just a sermon. Just the church going about the business of being the church, right? The, the thing I left out, though, is that right after Oscar Romero said those very words, may we give ourselves like Christ, not for self, but to give justice and peace to our people, a shot rang out in the sanctuary, and the preacher, Archbishop Romero of El Salvador, was dead. Now, they could have left the country. They could have done the easy thing. I mean, he's just one guy, right? But instead, he said, my place is with my people. Now, the folks in charge caught up to him. One night, as he was saying Mass in 1980, they walked through the doors of the church, and they shot him over the altar, preparing to break the bread of life. My place is with my people. On June 12, 1963, Medgar Evers returned home after a meeting with attorneys from the NAACP. He was, at the time, the first field secretary for the NAACP in Mississippi, working to organize boycotts and protests, as well as to register African Americans to vote. Well, needless to say, Medgar Evers found himself the target of white hostility among those who sought to retain control of the politics and culture of a state with a, a bloody history of oppressing black people. That night, as Medgar, Ever, uh, Medgar Evers pulled into his driveway, he got out of the car, headed into his house to see his family. He was carrying... NAACP t-shirts that read Jim Crow's got to go but after exiting his car he was shot in the back his wife found him bleeding out in the concrete it's a horrific tragedy beheld in living color by his wife and three small children now, the story of Medgar Evers and his assassination remains one of the foundational stories of the civil rights movement a story that prompted not only outrage, but that emboldened the very black population his assassination was meant to terrorize. It's one of the canonical stories of the civil rights movement, along with the lynching of Emmett Till, the courage of Rosa Parks, Fannie Lou Hamer, and John Lewis, the assassination of Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, Medgar's wife, uh, Merle Evers Williams picked up that work, ultimately becoming herself the chairperson of the board of the NAACP nationally, continuing the struggle after her husband died. In an interview with National Public Radio, Farai Chidea asked Merle Evers Williams how, in the days leading up to the assassination, she had dealt with the fear that Somehow her husband might be hurt or killed. And she said, I knew at some point, as he did, and we talked about it, that since he was the point person, he would be eliminated. We just didn't know 
how or when. And Chidea, appearing shocked, followed up by asking, do you literally mean that you spoke about this? That, that, that one day I will probably die? I mean, your husband said that to you? And she said, mm-hmm. But we knew that. We knew that from the day he accepted the job with the, N with the NAACP. Later in the interview, Merle Evers-Williams described what the implications of that sacrifice amounted to. She said, we had three children, which meant that they were going to grow up without a father. How would I explain it to them? How would I handle my own tendency towards suicide? I did not want to live without him. And, you know, I think people tend to think, oh, that, that person's gone. Sure, there's sadness. But they don't think about the impact, the, the long-term impact that losing someone like that can have on you. My children witnessed their father's death. And my children to this day still remember that nightmare. And it has affected all of us. See, even knowing what it might cost him, Medgar Evers went. And perhaps even more impressively, Merle Evers Williams, knowing the toll that it would exact, took up the mantle and walked beside him. I say that her sacrifice was perhaps even more impressive because while the dead are soon done with death, those left behind are never entirely finished with it. But what gave them both the strength to walk down the road they were called to walk is the fact that they found themselves within a narrative that gave meaning to the sacrifices they were likely to have to make. They believed that the work they were engaging in, work that trumpeted the cause of justice, that refused to bow before the throne of power, they knew this was necessary, a corrective to a world that, imp uh, that oppressed them and would surely do the same to their three children. Well, that's, that's pretty scary, don't you think? Individuals who don't see themselves as world changers are often difficult, uh, find it often difficult to stand up to those in authority to say out loud that the emperor has no clothes. I mean, the current political fight has been framed as a fight between white supremacists and black and brown people or, or immigrants, Muslims, refugees, or LGBTQ people, always singling out some group as other and then arguing that anything that benefits somebody else must necessarily come at my expense. The past... The recent past has taught us anything. It's that populist anger is alive and well. I know people like to talk about how they're for the underdog. But when it comes down to it, there are too many people hoping to get a chance at being the top dog to start making too many waves. I mean, it's hard to challenge the people who are in charge, the, the movers and the shakers, the ones who stand to gain by keeping everybody else in their place. It's tough stand up to people like that. And that's why this story about Samuel and Eli fascinates me. It's always fascinated me. Why is that? Well, 
young Master Samuel has been given over to the temple because of a promise that his mother made to God. Samuel is a priest in training who we're told as our story begins, did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. He's still small, still at the bottom of the pile looking up, looking up at old Eli, the priest in charge, who was lazy, corrupt, and now almost blind. Not so far gone that Eli's forgotten who his boss is. Because Samuel's in bed one night when God calls him and says, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel thinks it's Eli. And so he rushes to the old priest's bedside to ask what he wants. And Eli says, he hasn't called Samuel. He sends him back to bed. The same thing happens two more times. God calls and Samuel thinks it's Eli and he goes to Eli. wants to find out what Eli wants. And finally Eli says, look, I didn't call you. Just go back to bed. And if God calls you, then here's what you say. You say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. <clears throat> Which is exactly what Samuel does. And when Samuel says to God, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, God has some pretty harsh words about what's fixing to happen to old Eli. All of it bad. God's going to punish Eli's house forever because Eli's sons have committed blasphemy. And Eli has failed to stop them. Well, you might wonder what is it exactly that Eli's sons have done. <clears throat> well, according to the story, which is found just a few verses prior to our text for this morning, back in chapter 2, Eli's sons, themselves members of the priestly lineage, they would come along while somebody was offering sacrifice at the temple, and then they would take the choicest parts of the meat for themselves, by force, if necessary. See, their sin was that they treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. They treated those who came seeking God callously. As though, as members of the privileged class, they had some right to take what belonged to God. It's not good. God's angry with their arrogant presumption and their willingness to commit injustice against the very people they've been charged with caring for. Now, this taking advantage of the powerless by the powerful is a big deal in the book of Samuel. But we might expect that. Because one of the possible meanings of the name Samuel is God has heard. God has heard the plight of the helpless and has come to their aid. Indeed, after Hannah had taken young Samuel to the temple to give him up to God as she'd promised, she said a prayer that challenges the arrogance of the proud and the unjust and acknowledges God as judge. Humility, according to Hannah, is the appropriate attitude of those who would please God because God is a God who turns the tables on the powerful and the arrogant. 
She prays, the, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. God has always been about turning systems of injustice on their head. Consequently, it makes perfect sense that in the book of Samuel, we'd find God's angry with Eli's sons. Those who were in, the, in power at the temple, who repay God the honor of their positions by taking advantage of those who come honestly to offer worship to God. That's not good. <laughs> it's not good at all. But, I mean, come on, I mean, Eli's old and blind. I mean, why blame him? I mean, it's his sons who are scoundrels, right? I mean, why is God mad at him? Well, because as the chief priest, he's the one who's supposed to be looking out for the interests of God's people, especially those who come seeking humbly to worship God. Instead, those people are bullied and taken advantage of by the very people whose power Eli is responsible for overseeing. That is to say, if you stand by and say nothing when the folks on top fleece the folks on the bottom, well, then you've taken sides with Eli against God. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. If you don't stand up when those in power belittle and dehumanize the vulnerable, well, then you've turned your back on the very people God cares most about. The people who've been left out, the people who've been swept aside. Now, it's, it's not easy. In psychological studies, and our own experience show us that, I mean, two-thirds of the people are Eli at heart, willing to stand by and watch as the powerful do injustice. But not everybody. Samuel shows us it's possible. God tells Samuel to go tell Eli the truth about keeping silent in the face of corruption and that that silence has provoked the wrath of heaven. <laughs> I like them apples. Just, you know, go tell your boss that what she's doing is wrong. Stand up, speak truth to power. Tell the emperor he has no clothes. Yeah, it's not so easy, right? I mean, our own experience tells us most people won't do it. Even if the price of not doing it is that other people will suffer. But not little Samuel. Samuel says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Tell me what to say. And I'll say it. So this story of Samuel's courage is a, an uncomfortable one. I mean, it raises questions. Where are those places in our world where justice has been cast aside? Where is God asking us to tell those in charge that they failed to do what is right? Failed to treat those at the bottom of the pile in a manner pleasing to God? Where are we when the cries of millions of grieving and terrified black people tear the night in two or, or tens of thousands of immigrant children torn from the arms of their families lift up their plaintive cry to heaven? 
Where will God find us when the stories of the houseless and the vulnerable, the bullied and the forgotten are finally told? Where are we when white supremacists and white nationalists answer the call of our benighted leader to tear up our country and punish anyone who refuses to sing the song of the malignant narcissist under which they march and destroy? See, the story of Samuel challenges us, all of us. What are we going to do about it? That's really the question, isn't it? God has heard. God is listening. The question is, are we? Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.